Uh, we are privileged now to uh, turn to uh, God's Word, Second uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 3 this morning. And uh, with, I'll read that entire chapter, but our focus will be on, uh, on uh, verses 17 and 18. And as we, uh, as we turn to that, um, let us also uh, turn to the Lord and ask his blessing upon reading and preaching and hearing and responding to an obedience of the word this morning. Today, Spirit, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And may we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Send out your light and truth today. Give us ears to hear. Illumine our minds. Enlarge our hearts. And let us rest on the foundation of Christ. This morning, where there is weakness of faith, we pray that you would uh, be generous with your spirit. We pray that you would beautify Jesus in the hearts of each of us as we look into your word this morning. Amen. Second Corinthians uh, chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the, le of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites may not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, 
that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Spirit, <clears throat> the Spirit sanctifies us in many different ways, many different means. One of the ways that He sanctifies us is by telling us through His Word that uh, bad behavior has difficult consequences. And we take that warning and we look to the Lord and seek to follow Him. He also at times um, persuades us of the beauty of God's law. Um, he draws us into a life of faithfulness and obedience and peace and calm that comes in obedience to the Lord. Another way that the Lord that the Spirit sanctifies us is when we follow the example of the Puritans who were simply following the example of the Psalms, uh, when the Puritans would say that we are to hear not only the gospel preached in our worship services, but we are ourselves to preach the gospel to ourselves. We think of Psalm 103, for example, bless the Lord, and who is he speaking to? Oh, my soul. And all that is within you, bless his holy name, soul of mine, forget not all his benefits. He's forgiven your iniquities. The Spirit also sanctifies us through suffering, even as we've just sung today, the things of this world deflect us from focusing on the glory of God. And he often takes them away. So we refocus on Jesus and the inheritance to come. The Spirit uses many different ways to sanctify us. Now there's another principle that I want to lay out before we begin looking at this text. And that is a theme that runs throughout the scripture that you become like what you worship. What you worship, what you celebrate, what you long for, what you lean into, what you worship influences what you will become. I'd ask you to turn back with me to Psalm uh, Psalm 115 for just a moment as we as we look at this principle laid out in its negative form. In, in Psalm 115, I'll read verses 4 through 8. Um, speaking of the nations, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. 
these idols um, have mouths but do not speak, ears but do not see, but do not um, eyes rather, but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but they do not walk, and they make not no sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Worshiping an idol makes you a, a, a human not living out your full potential. You are like a, a dead person walking. That's the negative side. The positive side what is, is what is uh, laid out in our text this morning, where we gaze on the glory of Jesus, and as we gaze on the glory of Jesus, the Spirit transforms us so that we are like Him, like Jesus, in His image. Look to Jesus, and there will be a slow incremental change so slow that we don't notice it in real time but often as we look back we can see what the spirit has done over time the spirit does change us the spirit is changing you from the inside out amazingly from one degree of glory to another. That's where we're going today. Looking to Jesus, the Spirit will change us from one degree of glory to another. Gaze on Christ's glory, and the Spirit builds glory in you. Gaze on Christ's glory, and the Spirit builds glory glory in you. Well, gazing on Christ's glory, um, notice in the passage that we read uh, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, reference to the Old Testament, uh, to Moses, um, who was covered up in the face of God's people because of the glory that was revealed in him. Israel couldn't tolerate seeing God's Glory. They couldn't gaze on Moses. So he unveiled as he stood before God, face to face, hearing his word. He also, the text will say, tell us in the Old Testament, he kept that veil off when he was speaking God's word to his people. There's glory in the word, as there's glory in the Lord. But then when he ceased his teaching, he put the veil over his face. He covered up so they couldn't see that temporary glory. Here, regarding the Spirit's work in us, the Spirit uncovers your face. He unveils your heart so that you can see God's glory. As our catechism puts it so well, the Spirit enlightens our minds 
He renews our wills so that we are we desire to choose Christ. We desire to embrace Christ. He enlightens, he renews, he influences our hearts, making them desirous of Christ. That's how we come to Jesus, and that's exactly how we grow in him also. The Spirit works in us, enlightening our eyes to the glory and the beauty of Jesus, and more and more, our hearts are inclined to love him, to love what he's called us to do, and to act out this obedience. We marvel at the Son of God, who is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And to see him, Jesus tells us, to see Jesus, Jesus tells us, is to see the Father. So in the scriptures, we do see Christ. We see him unveiled. We see his glory. And all of the glory of God is compressed and compacted into the man, Jesus Christ, who is on display. He's, this glory is on display in Jesus of Nazareth. Remember what Philip, we read this a few weeks ago, Philip said in, in chapter 14 of John, uh, he said, he said, Lord, one thing we'd like to see, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus said, um, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so we see the glory of Christ as the Spirit unveils our own minds to be able to behold here. We see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So, among other things, we see the compassion of our Savior. Compassion that can be felt. You see, the crowds were harassed, they were helpless, they were a sheep without a shepherd. And as we read that, we can also perceive that Jesus has compassion for you and me in our struggles and difficulties. Uh, he has compassion for you in your broken life. Do you know there is one place uh, in the New Testament where Jesus actually describes his own heart? He self-describes, this is what I'm like. It's in the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus says that I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's Jesus' compassion, his gentleness, his lowliness. The bruised reed, he says, he will not break. What others throw away, Jesus says, they are just the ones that I want to use to come into and to change you see that about yourself? A bruised reed that has been rescued by the Savior. We also see his holy glory um, in his eyes as he rebukes the religious, religious gamers, who can call them. They are satisfied to appear righteous but are full of hypocrisy. To them he says, whoa, and we are taken up short. 
as we consider also our own hypocrisy. Do you see, my dear friends, that we are seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as it is laid out for us in the Gospels? Has the Spirit opened your eyes so that you see the glory of God in the living Word? None of us sees as clearly as we would like. And that's why we continue to pray and keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. And I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he's called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in the strength, in, in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. We pray. We see your glory. Show us more. Because as the Spirit shows us the glory of Christ, he also transforms us. The Spirit transforms us. Now we tend naturally to think that our sanctification is largely up to ourselves. We are good Americans after all, and we tend to think, given enough time and enough self-discipline, I can probably change pretty much anything about myself. And we devalue the role of the Spirit, the ministry of the Word, in itself and himself changing as John Owens describes that what what he calls the decays of grace that is the direction that grace in the life of the believer can take his heart at times and our hearts at times there can be a deadness and a coldness a, a, a sense of lukewarmness what he calls spiritual stupidity a senselessness comes over us when we understand and see ourselves in those categories, those terms, we realize we cannot just self-discipline ourselves out of this mess. Instead, Owen goes on to say, we receive the healing by a fresh view of the glory of Christ by faith, steady, abiding in him. Constant contemplation of Christ and his glory has transforming power for the revival of all grace. We see the pure glory of Jesus on another mountain. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. That word transfiguration uh, is, is, stands in the place of the, the Greek word from which we get metamorphosis, the mountain indicating the great change of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus. We see him transfigured and his face shone like sun and clothes as bright as a light and we get a glimpse of there of his future glory what is difficult for us to grasp is that we are being transfigured even now into that same glory that same perfect image it is amazing to see glory on Moses face 
as he had stood before the Lord and then came to his people, amazed, we're amazed. Lord, let us see some of that glory, right? Then we'd be fixed. But that had no power to change the ministry of condemnation, it was called, the ministry of death. And the Apostle Paul ignites our heart with this question, um, how, or statement, how much more glorious is the ministry of the Spirit? How much more glorious it is than God uh, carving out figures, letters, on a block of stone comprised of his law? How much better that the Spirit of God writes on our own hearts, reshaping our hearts in accordance with that law. The ministry that brings righteousness must far exceed that old ministry of judgment and death. It takes us in a strange direction at first, receiving this, this ministry of, of glory, of this ministry of righteousness, takes us in a strange direction at first. And that is the first thing that we're able to see when we see the glory of Jesus. The first thing that comes into clear focus or clearer focus is our own hearts. And seeing the righteousness and the glory and the beauty of Jesus enables us to take a look at ourselves. Calvin put it this way, one never achieves a clearer knowledge of self unless he has first looked upon God's face. Seeing God's face in the glory of Jesus enables us to see our own hearts. One of the gospel writer contains this, this little detail about Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, Luke's gospel contains this, this little statement that while uh, Peter uh, was in the, in the process of speaking his third denial, the third denial is going on, and at that moment, the rooster crows three times. And this is the detail that Luke includes. And Jesus looked at Peter. The denial is happening. And the Son of God looks at Peter. Their eyes locked. Perhaps for two seconds. For Peter, it must have felt like two hours. The shame of his exposure must have been unbearable. He was caught in the act, and he went out, and he wept bitterly. Now, the good part of the story for us is that despair of ourselves is not a bad thing, because it is a necessary part of seeing the sufficiency and the beauty of the Lord Jesus. Seeing the glory of Christ enables us to see ourselves and our need. And then, by the power of the Spirit, we are able to walk 
in freedom. Only the love of Christ, one of my favorite, currently favorite writers says, only the love of Christ has the power to uncoil the human heart. The kindness of Christ attracts our hearts away from self to him. This is how Jesus treated, treated Peter as he prophesied that this was going to happen, this denial. After you've turned, Peter, strengthen your brothers. I know you're going to fail. I know you're going to fall. Remember my blood. I will strengthen, I, I, I will equip you and, and call you after you have turned to strengthen your, your brothers. He was able to see Jesus as a merciful rescuer, as a healer, as a redeemer, and most amazing, as a friend. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, we're told in this text in 2 Corinthians, we're told where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Has your gaze upon Jesus both exposed you, but also liberated you? You can't really have one without the other. Has your gaze upon Jesus truly, truly exposed you so that you could also be liberated? Um, my very best friend uh, told me this many years ago. Um, and she said in describing what freedom is, uh, true freedom is the ability to do what you really want to do. Deep down inside, follow the Lord, be obedient. True freedom in Christ is being able to do what you really want to do. Uh, another friend of mine that I've not met, but I've read some of his books, uh, C.S. Lewis put it this way, the perfect man would never act from a sense of duty. He'd always want the right thing more than the wrong one. Duty is only a substitute for love of God or others, like a crutch, which is a substitute for a leg. Most of us need the crutch at times, but of course it is idiotic to use the crutch when our own legs, that is, our own loves, our own tastes, our own habits, uh, can do the journey on their own. I am not putting duty down. I'm just saying there's a higher motivation, and that is love. Freedom. Freedom. To experience the compassion of Jesus, and because you know and have tasted that compassion, you are free to give it to people. Because you have experienced Jesus' gentleness and patience, you can give that gentleness and patience to others. You have become horrified at your own self-righteousness and you have become settled and delightfully in the realization that his righteousness is enough. All of these things are life-turning and life-changing realities. 
as the Holy Spirit is pressing righteousness into the very folds of our hearts as Christ is being formed in us. So lastly, what we can expect as the Spirit works in us, we can expect to be growing as his people, listen to this, from one degree of glory to another. Your sanctification, we may daringly say, your sanctification is really the early stages of your glorification. We, we, we are well aware that when Jesus returns and we're glorified, we will be perfect, and that's wonderful. Do you dare to believe that your stages of sanctification now are little increments of that glorification that is certain to come? Little by little, you are being formed into the image of the transfigured and glorified Christ from one degree of glory to another. You, you are taking a million, many steps, many glory steps, so small that you often miss it. Clearly, you and I do not yet display the, the, what we might call the glow of heaven, but do we see, look for, do we see those changes that the self-righteous judging that so often has claimed our hearts melting into a gentle, a gentle patience with others? Do you see that? Once your tongue was an instrument for cutting people and badly, are you now building them up. Do you see that? We are certainly impressed with Moses' glory, but yours is increasing from glory to glory until one day when you see Jesus, you will be like him, for you will see him as he is. My call to you this morning is to expect God's glory. The glory we observe in the face of Jesus Christ as we open up his word, as it is illumined by the Spirit, expect God's glory to win you over more and more and again and again. We see one clear example. One of my favorites is in Hebrews chapter 11, where, where, where Moses, you where Moses, you recall, um, did not... He chose not to stick around in the house of, of Pharaoh, um, but instead um, he he was uh, he refused sin's fleeting pleasure and considered the reproaches of Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. We we sing a hymn that goes something like that: "The things of this world go." grow strangely dim. How and when does that happen? In the light, remember? The light of his glory and grace. That's how things of this world grow dim and fade from our sight. Is, is the gentle and lowly Jesus making you more gentle and lowly? Key question. 
some many years ago. Um, um, my my father had been invited by Sam Logan, who was at that time the president of, of Westminster Seminary. Sam Logan had invited him and my mom uh, to come up to the semin uh, the seminary um, at the occasion of my dad's 60th year or 60th anniversary of graduation from the seminary. And just as a way to honor him, Sam asked him to say a few words at, at the, the dinner beforehand. Um, but my point is that uh, I, I drove him up, stayed with him and observed uh, that weekend. Um, I was driving my parents uh, to, the, to that uh, commencement exercises and the closer we got to Philadelphia, My mother would ask this question. Um, she said, uh, she said, um, this looks familiar. Have we lived here before? And my dad said, yes, Norm, we once lived here. Probably 60 seconds later, my mom said again, Chuck, this looks familiar. Did we once live here? And he said with the exact same tone of voice, a, a tone of gentleness and patience and love, yes, Norm, we once lived here. 90 seconds went by, and Mom asked the same question. This looks familiar, Chuck. Have we ever lived here? Yes, Norm, we lived here once. I don't know about you, but I think my tone probably would have changed just a little bit by the time we got to question the same question the fourth time. But for my dad, a voice still with gentleness and mercy and patience and love for his bride, even in her decline. That was the last year of my dad's life. And one thing I take away from that is the spirit works over time in people like you and me. Maybe you're not at the point yet where you could have answered my mom the way dad did, but I'm thinking you're getting there as we move from glory to glory. Parents, how does this affect the way that you speak to your children? It is a difficult thing in one respect. It is a difficult thing for kids to grow up uh, in a Christian home. <laughs> and uh, one of the reasons is that we get bulletins. They get bulletins all the time about how you're supposed to live. Uh, don't do this, do that. And, and it, is, it is a real easy thing for the hearts of our precious loved children to think of Christianity as moralism. That is, Christianity is about doing the right thing. Um, and it does include that. I'm not saying it doesn't. But that's not the first thing. The first thing is knowing Jesus. And so parents, I urge you um, to lead your children by being humble yourself before the Lord. If you will, be, be the lead repenters in your home. Be willing to share with them even about your failures 
so that they don't grow up with an unrealistic view of what the Christian life is about. It's not just about succeeding. It's about failing and then being redeemed and show them that. Do your kids see you happy in Jesus? Maybe that would be enough just to see you happy in Jesus. See, this also affects the way we speak to one another here. We can speak about the ways that we are blessed by God, and that's wonderful. We can share experiences and enter into those experiences with each other, but could a slice of the pie of our conversation with one another also include areas in which we have failed and need to be rescued? Would you pray for me? I lost my temper again at my husband, my wife, my parents, my neighbor. Pray that I would have a vision of Jesus so precious that my heart would be changed. Tell stories of his gentle mercy to you in your weakness so that you together can marvel at the loveliness of Jesus. Now, having said all this, <laughs> this, this idea of, of being changed from one degree of glory to another, it finally, for me, it finally makes the final judgment make sense. Jesus sometimes can sound a little legalistic, can't he? <laughs> he makes comments like this, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I'm not sure I like that. But in the same passage, he says, by the power of the Spirit, a good tree will produce what? What kind of fruit? Good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. You've been made into a good tree, so there will be be good fruit. We are, of course, saved by the imputed righteousness of Jesus, that which is given to us, conveyed to us by faith in him. But the evidence of that is in the righteousness that has been imparted to us, the good fruit that the Spirit works. Saving faith, as Paul will put it, saving faith, faith always works through love. You believe in Jesus? There will be acts of love. Heartfelt acts of love. That's a promise. And on that day, when you stand before the Lord, um, will Jesus see glorious works in you? If you're a believer, this is what I envision, that the two of you, you and Jesus, will marvel together at the good works that the Spirit has formed in you. He will be praised, and you will be very happy in Jesus, and for a very long time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this amazing passage and your amazing work in us. We are recalcitrant, we are often stubborn, we are often willful but how we praise you for the gift of seeing 
the Son that you have sent for us. And the Spirit's work enlightening up, enlightening our, our minds and our eyes to see him. And I pray that each one of us here would see him more and more clearly and that you would be changing us, Spirit, from one degree of glory to another. We ask these things for your glorious name's sake. Amen. Amen.